Thank you, Randy. Um, he didn't introduce himself, but this is Randy Fuller who's leading us, and uh, we're so thankful for uh, the church, um, the big church, and as our brother Matt is on sabbatical, uh, Randy is a good friend of his, and to come and bless us and lead us, we're so thankful for him. Uh, thankful to Northbrook Church, um, where he serves regularly, and uh, so even this week, maybe remember Randy and Northbrook and give thanks to God for them and just lift him up in prayer. We're so grateful um, that we can be led to the throne. Um, it's never about as we say all the time here at City Church, it's not about us. It's not about any single one of us, um, but we collectively see God at work, and we see that just in the gift of our brother Randy. So thankful for that. And just was struck, even as we sang that song, as Paige sang those words, that we were not meant to run alone, friends. Um, I'm so glad to see all of you this morning because it's a reminder. Um, this is a testimony. Even your presence here this morning is a testimony that you know you weren't meant to run this race, to live this life alone. None of us are, and we're here together to worship Jesus and to be united in the gospel and to remind ourselves of what Christ has done uh, in our lives. Uh, if you are a guest, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and we are in a study in the book of Acts. Um, we are going to pick up in the middle of Acts chapter 5, where we left off last week. And so if you want to open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 5 uh, with me, I'll read in just a moment. But to catch you up, um, just uh, a little bit. Last week, uh, we looked at the beginning of chapter 5, primarily focused on verses 1 through um, 11. And in that text, we saw the story of Bar uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And if we back up two weeks, we had the story of Barnabas. And Barnabas, so encouraged by what God was doing and committed to the work of the Lord, the gospel had united the church, it describes, to uh, unify them so passionately about the purpose and the work of God and the, the work that they had been invited into that they were doing all that they could to see that work continue. And Barnabas was sort of lifted up just as an example of what the entire body was doing, which was just radically unified by the gospel. And because of that, they were displaying this radical generosity. They were selling land and doing whatever was required so that the work of God could continue. They were committed to doing that. Well, then we moved over and we saw a contrast to that story, a little bit of a challenging text last week as we looked at the life of Ananias and Sapphira, two people who were um, really ultimately committed to trying to do their best a little bit, but kind of faking it and playing church a little bit. In contrast to the gospel, the radical unity and radical generosity of Barnabas, we saw the worldliness of Ananias and Sapphira. They thought if we can kind of go along with the motions and sort of fake this life, that that would be enough. Ananias and Sapphira learned a really challenging lesson and it was a challenging text for us to look at. We can't play church, friends. God is at work, he's doing a great thing and he will protect and guard his church and he guarded his church against the sinful desires of Ananias and Sapphira to try and sort of hold back and say we need to protect our own lives. I said last week, if you came looking for a pep talk, um, we weren't in that text last week. Well, this week... We are in that text. As we pick up in Acts chapter 5, um, in verse 12 here in just a moment, we are going to see the powerful work of God. And I hope, as my heart has been this week, your heart, our hearts together might be excited in the passion and the boldness and the strength to carry on and to do the work that God has called us to would continue to take place in this church. And so if you're able, I'm going to read just a small portion of our text this morning, but if you're able, would you stand out of reverence for God's word as I read from Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people 
by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in pub the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the preservation of your word that can encourage us this morning and can remind us, Lord Jesus, that you will build your church and nothing can stand against it. I pray that we all would be encouraged, even as we've been able to lay down our burdens before you, may we now pick up our cross and be committed to following you, to proclaiming your excellencies to everyone that we might encounter. May the gospel be boldly on our lips as we leave this place this morning, as we're encouraged through the stories of our brothers from long ago and their faithfulness, their boldness, their strength. Holy Spirit, now strengthen us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So, if you remember back to Acts chapter 4, verse 29, the apostles had prayed for boldness. They had asked God to strengthen them to face the challenges that were going to come against them. They knew that they would face oppression. Jesus had promised that if you're going to follow after me, you're going to be opposed. You're not greater than your master. Over and over and over again, Jesus told his followers that they would also face the challenges that he faced. And so they prayed in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. It talks about they're praying for boldness. Well, we now see the answer to that prayer. We see the fulfillment of that prayer, God answering the requests of their heart. We have this gap in this story again about how the church was growing and being built up. But now we return, in a sense, to the work of the apostles. And it says there in verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly being done. This wasn't some sort of one-day thing. It wasn't a short term, but it was regularly being done over and over and over again. Through the hands of the apostles, God was at work. They were together there, it says, at the temple in Solomon's portico, and there was such awe over what the apostles were doing that those that were there, when it talks about them not being willing to come up, they were sort of standing back there, letting the apostles do the work of this ministry. But the apostles are all together, and it says that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Do you remember in the early verses or the early chapters of this text, we saw 3,000 people added to their number in that day? The Bible knew enough to account for 3,000 people. Can you imagine what number it must have been that were being added that Luke didn't even try to count them? He could count to 3,000. When he got to 3,001, that was the end of his thumbs. And so he couldn't even count how many people were being saved and being redeemed. And the work of God was so powerful that they didn't even try to account. More than ever, multitudes of both men and women were being carried. So much and so much power was at work in these early days of the church that they thought if we could just come and lay the people out in the streets and Peter's shadow might fall upon them, they could be healed. 
The shadow in those days was revered as something a little bit supernatural. And so there was this thought that maybe if Peter's shadow fell on the sick, they would be healed. God was moving in a ridiculously powerful way. And every single person that was in that time and in that space knew what God was up to. They saw the work. Well, as this movement begins to grow so much that they can't even count the number of people, of course, there comes more opposition. And this is why the apostles had prayed for boldness. They were seeing many signs and wonders being done. But as we'll see, as we look at verse 17, as I just read, the high priest rose up and all who were with them and sent all of the religious leaders of the day, and they are filled with jealousy. There is miracles happening left and right. And yet, all of those miracles weren't enough to convince the Pharisees, the religious elite of that day, that God was doing what he said he would do, that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised. Friends, this teaches us that, yes, there are many signs and wonders, but there can never be enough. There aren't ever enough. We might say to ourselves, you may have thought to yourself, well, if God could just do a miracle here, that might be the work that would convince someone to believe. There aren't enough miracles. There couldn't be. It wasn't a matter of there not being enough miracles. If it was a matter of them just seeing the enough miracles being done, then they would have believed right here because there were so many. That's why Luke records that there was so much power going through the apostles, at work through the apostles, and it still wasn't enough to satisfy the jealousy of the Pharisees and specifically the leading group, the Sadducees here. There aren't enough miracles, friends, to convince someone that God is real. The reason for that is because the lack of faith It's rooted in, not in a lack of evidence. Lack of faith is rooted in the reality that so many don't want God to be God. Because if God is God, then that means that we are not. That is the challenge. It's not a matter of how many miracles could be performed or if this could happen or that could happen. Maybe then someone could be convinced. No, lack of faith is rooted in the sinful desire for us to be our own gods. The Pharisees wanted to maintain their ruling authority to, in a sense, act as God over the people in that time. They didn't believe in the Messiah because believing in Jesus meant that he must be God, and if he is going to be God, then he will rule over our lives. I want you to just to consider this, again, philosophically somewhat. If he is God, do we have any response other than bowing before him? If he is truly God, then the only thing we can do is humble ourselves before him as God. And so Ananias and Sapphira thought perhaps maybe he can be God, he can be the Messiah, he can be my savior, but I don't need to follow him completely. I can sort of play along with church. I can sort of do things that look a little bit like his thing, but it's not his. That doesn't work. That's not how God's economy works. If he is God, he will be worshiped as God, friends. And the Pharisees, the leaders of that day, they couldn't acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah because that would mean that they were wrong. That would mean that they weren't God themselves. This is why they were so jealous. Jesus, by the way, told the apostles that this would happen. He saw this happen in his own lifetime. We can look at Mark chapter eight. There's a story that follows that in Luke as well as a parallel in Matthew. In all three of those gospels, there's a story of Jesus saying to the leaders, why does this generation seek a sign? Why are you looking for a, a sign? 
Believe what you have already seen in front of you. Believe that I'm here, in a sense, he's saying. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus wasn't going to give them another sign. He did here, as the story continued, there was many signs and wonders, but it wasn't, Jesus understood, it wasn't about a miracle being done. It wasn't about there being enough signs. They didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't want to believe that he was God. I've got to imagine there's at least one or two, perhaps many in this room, who you're unsure of who Jesus is. You're not sure if you can worship him. You're not sure, could he really be God? As I say all the time, I'm so glad that you are here. Thank you for trusting your friend, your neighbor, the Holy Spirit of God that just prompted you to come alone to be here and to sit with us, to worship with us. Let me encourage you and challenge you. At the root of that question in your heart, at the root of the, maybe the frustration that you're experiencing is, can you acknowledge that you are not God? Everything else, the pride of our lives tries to convince us that we are the rulers of our own lives. This is why today in our culture, that is the primary message, that you are your own God, that what you decide, what you wanna believe, all of those things are true. And God's word comes squarely against that and says, no, friend, you are not God. There is one God, and he will be worshiped. So as you wrestle with that, I encourage you to wrestle with yourself. Are you really God? Do you really believe that? Because so often the actions and the challenges that we face are rooted in this idea that we believe we are God. Well, in the face of this oppression or this coming against them that the Pharisees were experiencing there, as it says in verse 17, again, the high priest, they rise up against the clear evidence that God is at work, the clear evidence of what Jesus is doing. We can remember what Jesus said to the apostles again at the very beginning of this book. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That's what happened at Pentecost, and we saw that happen, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. And as he promised them before in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. He's talking to Peter. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We're going to see that happen right here. We're going to see an evidence of that reality come to face. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to testify. You're going to see all the great and mighty things that I'm going to do through you. And that's what they're experiencing right here in Acts chapter 5. And guess what? No matter what comes against you, he promises, I will build my church. And the apostles are going to face that right here in Acts chapter 5 at the end, verses 13 and following. And so... The apostles face this oppression that comes against them as they're thrown in jail, it says. They're thrown in jail, and then a miracle happens. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach 
Yes, there aren't any miracles. There aren't enough miracles to convince the world of who Jesus is. Only God can reveal himself to us. But as he continues to empower and encourage and spur on the church in this new work that they have been called to, we see that there isn't a prison that can hold the work of God. When Jesus said, the gates of hell will not stand against me building my church, they are living that out right now. Not even a prison could hold them. There's a miracle that takes place. The apostles are delivered by an angel. One of the ironies of this story, by the way, is that they're delivered by an angel. You may know this, but the Sadducees, this specific sect of the religious leaders of the day, they didn't believe in angels. <laughs> they didn't believe that angels were real. They denied the reality of angels. And then an angel is the one who delivers the people, the apostles, as they are arrested by them. And they're told to go and stand. It says, go again in verse 20, go and stand in the temple and teach, speak to all the people, all the words of this life. Do you remember they prayed for boldness? Well, now they are told by the angel, you're released from this prison, go out from this prison and go and stand in the temple and teach the words of life. Speak the words of life. There's a capital L in our Bibles there for life because they're telling, the, the angel is telling them to speak the words of Jesus, proclaim the good news of Jesus. Do you notice what they're not told to do? They're not told to run to the Sadducees and complain about their arrest. They're not told to go and argue with the religious leaders about the validity of their arrest. There wasn't really, you had no authority to arrest us. Why did you arrest us? All, all we were doing was responding. They didn't do any of that. They are told, you just go and keep doing what I've told you to do to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Don't worry about all this oppression. Don't worry about the attacks that are going to come your way. Go and proclaim the words of life. You have one mission, friends. They are told, you have one mission, and we continue this mission. Until I say that you are done, go and make much of the name of Jesus. That's all we are called to do. If you want to know what the will of God is for your life, if you're curious about what you should do, your job, your one purpose for existing on this earth, the reason that God created you, the reason that he redeemed you from that fall in your life, the sinfulness of your own life, and raised you to new life in him was so that you would glorify his name wherever you go. Make much of Jesus everywhere. That is the only job we have. The apostles are told, go and tell about Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the Lord has the power to deliver us at any time that he likes. In this moment in time, in this particular story of history, he decided to redeem and deliver the apostles from that prison in that moment. And there he, they delivered them until it was time for them to be delivered ultimately into eternity. And the apostles learned a really important lesson here. Nothing can stop the Lord from doing what he intends to do. There aren't enough prisons to hold the hymn back. Had that prison held for some reason, there would have been a new crop of people that would have been raised up and sent out to make much of Jesus. If Jesus had decided that that was the time for the apostles to their lives to be over and to hand the reins off to someone else, then he would have done that and nothing would stop them. So if I suffer, if I face oppression, if I'm challenged in this life, here's the good news, friends. It has a purpose. It's not on accident. It's not that God has forgotten you. It's not that God has said, no, I don't really care about you anymore. God is doing something he has a purpose for. 
We don't understand sometimes. I don't know why these things, I wish I could understand. But here's the good news. I don't want to know so much about God that he is no longer a mystery to me because that's a God that I can put in a box. I want a big God that I can't comprehend. I don't always understand his ways, that his ways are higher than my ways. That's the God who is worthy of worship. That's the God who's worthy of following. But the apostles, they learned that until Jesus said, it's time for you to come home, you have one purpose, go and teach And isn't it interesting, at the end of this text, as we skip ahead, and I may not have time to even get here, so I'm going to tell it to you right now. Verse 41, at the very end of this story, the apostles, it says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They had been counted worthy to to suffer and, and to deal with dishonor of their name for the sake of the name of Jesus. And they rejoiced over that. They were worshiping over the fact that they had been thrown in prison and threatened with their lives because it taught them this lesson that God is sovereign over all things. And that until Jesus says, it's time to come home, you just keep living for me. Do you wanna know what happened to these apostles that were thrown in jail? Church history teaches us that Matthew suffered martyrdom by the sword. Mark died in Alexandria being, after he was dragged through the streets and then killed. Luke was hanged on a large olive tree in Greece. John was scarred in a cauldron of boiling oil and then lived his last days on an island. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the less, this other James, was thrown, into, thrown off of, uh, uh, the pinnacle and beaten with a club until he died. Philip was hanged. Bar- Bartholomew was scourged, beaten, and then um, he died. The same happened to Andrew. Thomas was run through with a lance. Jude was killed by an executioner's arrow. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Same happened to Bartimaeus, stoned and then beheaded. And then Paul was beheaded in Rome. Do you think they were ready to suffer? They had been encouraged. They had seen. Why? Because they could call back to this moment in time where they said, until Jesus says so, we are going to stand and proclaim his name. And it encouraged them, it strengthened them. What would drive them to stand firm and proclaim the words of life even to the point of all of them facing these gruesome deaths? They knew, they had been convinced, they were sure of the purpose that God had given them and they were going to live out that purpose until he called them home. And they remembered it for the rest of their lives. Brothers and sisters, we also have one purpose in life to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And yes, hard things will come our way, things that try and distract us from that purpose. But stand firm, remember what Christ has done for you. And here's the beauty of this. No one can argue with that story. No one can tell you that you're wrong when you tell them, this is what Jesus has done for me. I've told you guys over and over and over again in this church, perhaps if this is your first time here, you're going to hear it now and you're going to hear it until Jesus calls me home. I was a teenager rebelling from God, completely not interested in anything of God, a little bit like Ananias and Sapphira though, because I love my mom. I'd play along and go to church and do whatever was required just to keep peace in the home. But I was rebellious and God would have been right and just to just just cast me off and say, you're worthless, I don't need you. And all alone in my room, the Holy Spirit of God came through as I studied his word and he raised me from death to life and he transformed my life. He changed my life forever. And ever since then, not perfectly, but ever since then, I have pursued Jesus. I have followed him. I've considered him worthy of following because I know what God would have been right to do. 
you may have some problems with Jesus. You may have some questions about Jesus. You may want to challenge Jesus' teaching. What you cannot challenge is you cannot change the story that I just told you about what he's done for me. Brothers and sisters, as you go out into the world and you testify and you talk about what Christ has done, yes, there will be challenges, there will be oppression. We can talk about theology. We can get in the weeds all day long. We'll do that on Tuesday morning in men's Bible study. We do that in fight clubs. We'll do that in Wednesdays in the fall. Ladies, you'll be able to do that all Tuesday night. There's plenty of places to do that. But as you go out into the world and talk about Jesus, no one can argue with the story that he's given you, the transformation of what he has done, the, the power at work in that story. Know that story, live out that story, testify to that story over and over and over and over again. He's given you that opportunity and he has called us to that. Stand and proclaim the words of life. This is who we are called to be. Well, they thought that a prison would might contain them. Well, that didn't work. So they tried to have a court hearing about them. If we continue on this story. The high priest, they come and they're looking for them. They can't even find them. It's reported to them that even though the prison was locked and they were in the public prison, it notes, by the way, they were in the prison that everybody could see, that everybody knew exactly where it was. Again, an ironic story, a little bit of comedy from Luke there. They were thrown into the public prison. Now they couldn't find them anymore. Oh, they're teaching again. So the captain and the officers, it says in verse 26, as we skip ahead, comes, they take them. By the way, notice how they take them this time, not by force, because now they realize something is at work here. There's been a miracle now of them being released from prison that has at least gotten the guards' attention to think God must be at work. And so he brings them. They, they are brought before the council and the high priest charges them, says, we strictly, verse 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We strictly charge you. Notice, by the way, to support what I just shared, that no one can argue with the story of what Jesus has done. They don't try to say anything about Jesus. They don't talk about, they don't try to confront what they are actually teaching. What they try to say is, we told you that you just couldn't teach that way. We told you you couldn't say that. And what were they worried about? They were worried about their own guilt. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So many reject Jesus Again, because to accept Jesus is to accept our own guilt. To accept your own guilt. If you're struggling with Jesus this morning, let me tell you one of the first steps, if not the first step for you to take, is just to acknowledge, as I just did before you all, I was guilty, friends. I was guilty. Notice I can say that without any shame. Do you want to know why? Because I know the life that I've been given in Jesus. But I was guilty. It was right that God would condemn me. It would have been right for him to cast me off, but he didn't. Tim Keller said this, you can't be in denial about your capacity to sin. Sin is always crouching at your door. You are capable of much more than you want to admit. So the first thing you must do is to get out of denial. The first thing that you must do is to get out of denial and to accept and say, yes, I am guilty. I would be guilty before God. But I love this second quote from Dr. Keller. You are more sinful than you ever thought you were. Isn't that true? You are more sinful than you ever thought you were. And here's the gospel. You are more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. Those two statements are true. The Pharisees, they couldn't accept their own guilt and it's why they could not see Jesus. 
They couldn't accept their own guilt. They were worried about his blood being brought upon them, which it was. And Peter says that. He says, yes, you killed him. But guess what? Pharisee, Mr. Sadducee, I have some good news for you. Even though you don't believe in the resurrection, he was raised to life. You couldn't kill him. He was raised to life so that you might even find life in him. So that repentance would be found and the forgiveness of sins. And none of that did they accept. They were unwilling to see their own sinfulness. The accusers are filled with fear because the accused, once again, stand firm before them and say, yes, you are guilty of that sin, but you are also more loved than you could ever know you were. Every single one of you, I've run out of time. (laughs) I wanna leave you with this. Yes, you are guilty. You are more sinful than you ever thought you were but you are also more loved than you ever imagined that you can be. Very quickly, the Pharisees respond to this. They say that they want them killed. They threaten their own life. They say, we must kill them. Look at this in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Ultimately though, a wise sage of the Pharisees stood up, Gamaliel, and he says, hey, If this is from God, we better pause for a moment here. And he gives a history lesson and he reminds them, all those who came before them, if they weren't from God, they fell away, they died, and it kind of washed away. But if this is from God, we better watch out. We better watch out. Because God cannot be stopped. And surely this was from God. God cannot be stopped, friends. This work that he was doing in these apostles' lives to embolden them and to strengthen them and to remind them of his power, it was surely a work of God. The apostles could have said, or they could have rightly worn the shirt that's become popular today. Not today, Satan. You're not taking our life today because God is going to continue to do the work that he intends to do. And here, 2,000 years later, in the face of great oppression and attack and challenges in our world, guess what? Everything that could have been done to stop this movement has been attempted over the last 2,000 years. Do you know that? If you don't know the story of the church and the history of the church, let me tell you one of the reasons it's worth kind of reading and studying is to see all of the various ways that the enemy has tried to thwart the work of God, tried to stop the church from doing what God has intended, and none of it has worked. You want to know how I know that? we're here and we're alive and we are seeing evidence of God's work all around us in this church and so I'm strengthened I'm 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 emboldened before God not pridefully but I'm emboldened because I know that God is at work and he will not stop doing what he intends to do using us however he intends to use us until he's ready until he's raised someone else up, until he's ready to call us home, until he's ready to say, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna complete this work of making all things new. Until then, we have one purpose. So may we also, like the apostles of this day, say to God, we consider it a joy. We rejoice to be counted worthy of suffering for your name, Jesus. We rejoice to be able to say to the world, we want to tell you the good news of Jesus. We want to... We want to tell you how loved you are. 
We're gonna respond to Jesus with a song, a song we sing often in our church, declaring the mercy of God. Yes, I was guilty. Each and every one of us was guilty before an almighty and perfect, holy and righteous God. And yet, his mercy towards me was greater than my sin. I am more loved than I could ever imagined I am by that God. And each and every one of you is as well. So as the worship team leads us, let's remember what Christ has done for us. Let's be strengthened by it. Even now as we sing, maybe rehearse that story of God's kindness to you. Rehearse the story of his mercy in your life. So that as we go out from this place this morning, we could declare the good news of Jesus to everyone we come encounter with. Let's respond. Stand if you're able and sing. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh, oh you say.